Where are my Polish people at? Do we have some Poles? Raise your hand up. Be proud. All right, good. You're going to like this. You're going to like this. I'm a quarter Polish. My mom's mom, she and her family came over um, from Poland and settled in Canada. So get ready. June 2nd, 1979. This is the reign of Pope St. John Paul II. It's his first year of being the Pope. He was raised to the chair of St. Peter in 1978 in October. And in June, he had planned to go to his homeland, to Poland. That's a huge event. He's the first Polish Pope ever in the history of the church. The first non-Italian Pope in 455 years. And of course, if you know your history, you know that at that moment, Poland is not free. They're under the rule of the communists. The Iron Curtain is strong. And they are not free. An atheistic regime is overseeing them and seeking to attack their very identity. And so the worst thing that could happen for them was that an obscure, unknown, unexpected pole becomes the head of the Roman Catholic Church. And not an old man, 58 years old. So think Bishop Vetter plus two years. The Pope, with energy and vitality and a great desire to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he wanted to go back to his home. And the communists couldn't do anything about it because if they said no to the Pope, which they did, by the way, in 1966, Pope St. Paul VI wanted to go to Poland in 1966 to celebrate the thousandth anniversary of Poland becoming a Catholic country, the faith. And they said, no, you can't come. But now, with a Polish Pope, how could they resist? They would look so weak on the world stage. And so they grant him nine days in June. And on June 2nd, he goes to the Polish capital, Warsaw, and they have an outdoor mass in Victory Square, named Victory Square by the communists who created that square after they took over the country following World War II. It's an outdoor mass. The communists have strict rules. Do not let the cameras show how many people are here. They fear that there might be tens of thousands of people and it would look bad. Well, it did look bad because it wasn't 10,000 people, it was a million people. The Polish people came out and they were packing the streets. And the mass begins, it's on the vigil of Pentecost. And so St. John Paul II is calling down the Holy Spirit to renew the faith of the people, to stir up into them that flame of faith that the Polish people have preserved so strongly. He begins preaching his homily. And at various points in the homily, the crowd stops the Pope from preaching because they're chanting, we want God, we want God, we want God. And that cry is coming from a place of repression. They have been told and educated by the communists that God is not real, that faith is worthless, that the church is evil. 
And those communist officials were not absent at that mass. They were standing on the buildings around the square, making their presence known that we are watching you. We want God. We want God. The Pope doesn't stop them. And then they begin to sing. Christus vincit. Christus regnat. Christus imperat. Christ conquers. Christ reigns. Christ rules. And the Pope at that moment pointed to the communists who were on the roofs looking down. And then he pointed to the Polish people. Game, set, match. The Iron Curtain, the Soviet Union falls apart within 15 years. No shots fired, just faith. Poland is the first one to say, no, we don't want this. And the communists can't stop it. Faith. I wanted to tell that story because you should know your history. And we should know what strength of faith should run through our veins as Catholics. Because the whole body of Christ is connected. We should know what people were willing to endure so that they could worship. I thought of that story especially as I read this gospel because we heard the transfiguration. Transfiguration is the fourth luminous mystery of the gospel, of, of the rosary. And if you know the rosary, you know that there's a, a, a certain virtue attached to every mystery of the rosary. And the virtue for the transfiguration, the fourth luminous mystery is this, the desire for God. The desire for God. The Polish people in 1979, they could roar, we want God. Could we? Could we roar that today? What do we want? What do we actually desire? That's what Lent's all about. Lent is a very intentional time of examining our desires. And it is meant to be a very intense time of purifying those desires. So let me be clear. Desires are good. They're good, provided that they're rightly ordered, provided that they're pointed in the right direction. St. Augustine, St. Augustine, who had his past, who knew the problem with disordered desire, never hated desire. He's the one who said this, the whole of the Christian life is nothing other than holy desire. The whole of the Christian life is nothing other than holy desire. You see, we're meant to have strong desires, to be passionate people. We're not meant to be numb or indifferent. That's what worries me so much, seeing people so attached to their technological devices people who just scroll through life and not really care about anything. We're not meant to be that way. The Lord doesn't want us lukewarm. 
He'd rather that we were either hot or cold, but not lukewarm. And so we're meant to have strong desires. But we also have to understand that our hearts have been wounded by sin. And so our desires have to be purified. And if you get serious about the spiritual life, you find out that pretty quickly, when you get real serious, those desires really do need to be purified. So we have conflicting desires. Do we want God? Yes, we do. Your heart wants God. And so does the heart of every single person you will ever meet, no matter what they say they believe. Because we are created by God and he wrote into our human nature a deep and lasting abiding desire for him. St. Augustine knew that. His great line, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. You have made us for yourself, O God. We're all made for God. We have that deep desire within us. It's just that in this culture, compounded by our woundedness as sinners, that deep and abiding desire gets buried under other desires. And so we have to do the good, hard work of Lent, not only to examine the desires that we have and to own up to what is good and what is not good, but also to beg the Lord for the grace to purify those desires so that we want, what we want comes online with his deep desire for us. How do you know what you really want? Where do you spend your time when you aren't compelled to do something? What do you do with yourself when you're free, when you don't have work and you don't have school and the other things that busy our lives? See, look, if you rarely, if ever, pray when you have time, then you don't have a deep desire for God. If you rarely, if ever, serve the poor when you have the ability to do so, then you don't really desire to serve the poor. Something else is a more pressing desire. Lent is the time to look at that and make the changes that we need to make. We make time for prayer. We make space in our lives for the poor. We choose to do things differently in this season, prayer, fasting, almsgiving, so that those deeper desires, the better desires, the ones that actually matter, come to the fore and gain strength. And then we can say with clarity, just like the Polish people, we want God. We want to serve him. We want to be people who do what he asks us to do because we know who we are. So what do you desire? That question I can't answer for you. Take the time and be honest. Here's the question I can answer. What does God desire? I can answer that one. God desires us. He wants us. He's all in for us. That's this gospel. The Father thunders from heaven as Jesus is transfigured. This is my beloved Son. 
and listen to him. Listen to him. What is Jesus saying? Not just in his words, but in his very person, because he is the word made flesh. What is he saying to us? He's saying that I am on your side, that I am with you, and I am entirely for you. Once we know that, then everything changes. The things we face that are difficult, we overcome, not by our own efforts, but in and through the one who is with us and who is for us. St. Paul, Romans 8, what a great second reading. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's the faith that is in you if you were baptized. If God is for you, who can be against you? What will you face that overcomes that? Brothers and sisters, God's deepest desire is for us to be saved and to share in his divine life. You know what happens when we actually receive that grace? The same light that Jesus shone with starts to shine in us. He's the light of the world and he scatters the darkness. No darkness can overcome him. And for people who know him, for people who have experienced him, for people who desire him, that light shines in them. That's the light that's meant to shine in us. So, brothers and sisters, what do you desire tonight? Who do you desire tonight? God desires us. He has chosen us. He's chosen you. Let's also choose him. Amen.